0: You're listening to On Mission with Dr. Matt Davis, a podcast designed to explore the personal mission of everyday leaders. Hear from men and women who are making a difference in their corner of the world and discover what keeps them on mission.
1: In today's conversations, Matt and I talk with two people who are self-identified people people. More than just being extroverted in nature, Mark Herpster's life has been characterized by relationship building. Whether it was traveling to churches and ministering specifically with pastors or grabbing coffee with high schoolers at the many summer camps he spent time at, Mark loves people. And it shows. Susan Marshall also understands that good leadership is an exercise in relationship building. She contends that you can't expect to be effective in your mentoring if you don't care about the person first and foremost as a human and not a project. To Susan, mentorship is not a game of adding personal trophies to the wall, but of inspiring others to have a backbone in order to do what is right, not just what is
0: successful. Last week, I read an article that was called, Is the Internet Good for the Church? And I thought, well, this is interesting because we've certainly talked about that a lot on our podcast and in private conversations. And they said kind of the obvious that 20 years ago, as if that was a really long time ago. I mean, 20 years ago was 2002, all right? <laughs> it doesn't seem like that long ago for me anyway. In my lifetime, it's a yeah. long time ago. 20 years ago, well-informed citizens might claim 20 sources of news. And now they're talking about you have 20 to 200 to 2,000, to 200,000, to 2 million, to every single person in the world who has a Twitter or a Facebook or an Instagram. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: When you think about the number of voices and the lack of discernment in determining credibility of each of those sources, now we have the opposite problem. It's not that we don't have access to information. It's that we have access to too much information and we don't know what the real truth is. And the question that comes up in terms of church is not the undeniable fact that the internet is good for some things as a tool, it can be used in ministry, but whether or not the internet is replacing church in some of its core Mm. functions. We all had to do Zoom church for a while during COVID and people started to think, well, wait a minute, I can connect with my church, but you know, the church three states away Puts on a better show or has a better preacher, or, or, you know, and the next thing you know, people don't come back. But there are parts of church that are irreplaceable. There are human elements that we need that the church is designed to meet. And I think it's very interesting that both of these conversations with very different walks of life, very different kinds of people, they're both talking about the need for personal ministry, personal ministry. And you know, the article goes on to explain the difference between curation, like reading the encyclopedia, where they've chosen all of the best sources, versus an algorithm, which personalizes what you get and might know you better than you would even like to admit. And One of the paragraphs says, at the time, it was still a curated world controlled by editors and publishers and producers. Like pastors, these gatekeepers benefited from broad agreement. TV shows and periodicals could sell more advertisements that way. Pastors could focus on study and shepherding with one eye on the most popular cable news and talk radio hosts among their congregations. And that was good enough. You kind of knew what the temperature was. But but they would go on to say the curated world has largely disappeared and it's been replaced by the algorithm. And so, you know, we got to ask ourselves, what, what is shaping Christians? What is shaping young people more these days, their relationships at church, their one-on-one mentoring relationships, or their relationships online? And we have to confront that and realize that. And so I think we have to look at the benefits. Certainly, uh, you could go back and look at Martin Luther and the revolution. You know, honestly, that he sparked in the 16th century. And he took the case straight to the people by writing not in the scholarly language of the time, but rather in the vernacular. And he took people back to the scriptures and that's where the power is. And so by going right straight there, he had a much different result than say John Huss, who comes along a little before the printing press and is burned at the stake. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so his, his movement doesn't spark quite the same revolution. Now, obviously he, Set the stage for much of that as well. So, as we look at a new kind of revolution, an internet revolution, I think it's very important that, yes, we use it as a proper tool, but that we understand that this technology is never going to replace the essential functions of the church as God designed them in one on one ministry. People need mentorship. And that's what Susan Marshall talks about a lot as well. Even in the business world and her connections and contacts, she's talking about the need, the craving, the internal need. For mentoring and that businesses that capture this and ministries that capture this will be the ones that succeed and thrive in this new age.
1: And I think something that they both hit on is that leadership is done best in the context or leadership conversations help help. I think something that they both talk about very specifically is that leadership and and truth being told happens in context when the leader knows the person, when the leader might have truth. To be able to broadcast to thousands and hundreds of thousands of people. But the most effective version of that truth telling is going to be with someone in the same room. They've been in the job together day in and day out. They've had the same struggles, and you can't replace that.
0: The article ends with that point. It says the best defense for discernment in the digital age is a local church leader or a local business leader, someone who has submitted to God's word as the authority, right? That there is an actual basis of truth. Who knows your name and knows your weaknesses and loves you all the same. That's the best defense for the truth. That's the best way to mentor. It's the best way to lead. Let's get to it.
1: Today, we are joined by Ms. Susan Marshall, author and founder of Backbone Institute LLC. Susan is from Oconomowoc, Wisconsin, has two grown daughters and five granddaughters. Inspired by JFK's Ask Not Challenge, Susan has been a student and practitioner of leadership and personal professional effectiveness she has the privilege of helping thousands of people from all walks of life do the difficult and exhilarating work of growing backbones instead of wishbones. Susan's favorite meal of the day is breakfast, specifically a veggie omelet. Her hobbies include reading and writing. Susan, welcome to the podcast.
3: Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. And thanks for mentioning that veggie omelet. It really is my favorite thing.
0: Well, (laughs) that's great. And you know, we had a business breakfast this morning and you were the keynote speaker for that. And I'm so thankful for Uh, You taking time out to not only join us for that and uh, give that presentation, which was very informative, but also to talk to us today on the podcast. So thank you for joining us in that. And I have a couple of questions for you just uh, before we get going here today, just find out a little bit about you and your preferences in life. And so uh, my first question is, if you could travel anywhere in the world that you haven't yet been, where would you go and why? Why?
3: Oh, where would I go and why? Um, I would go to probably um, the Samoan Islands.
0: Interesting. Yeah,
3: because I have a perception, and it may be absolutely false. I've never been there. um, But I have a perception of richness and depth in terms of the people who live there along with ocean breezes and the sound of the waves.
0: Oh, yeah. That sounds delightful right now. Yeah, (laughs) Let's do it. Let's do it. All right. So I picked up in your talk this morning that you really wanted to be a lawyer in life. And I respect that because I'm, I'm an attorney by profession. I don't know if you realize that. And so did you always want to be a lawyer and how terrible has your life been since you, you never went that route or did you?
3: (laughs) Thank you for opening that wound again. I really appreciate this. I did. I always wanted to be a lawyer and, and actually I wanted to be engaged in conversations that mattered. Right. right? So debate. And, and as I said this morning, I loved to debate. I would debate anybody about anything. My mother called me argumentative. (laughs) I did not appreciate that. And we debated that. Right. So and it's fascinating to me, and always has been, continues to be to this day, where debate or discussion becomes arguments right. and invitation to intellectual retaliation. I'm like, wow, okay. We we hear, I'm triggered. Yes. Okay, well.
0: Words are violence and things like that. and We can't have a, just a civil conversation about something maybe we disagree over.
3: When did we lose our curiosity right. and trade it in for flat-out conflict?
0: Hmm. Interesting. So you have an organization that you've decided to name. I assume as the founder, you got to choose the name for Absolutely. it. Absolutely. And you chose to call it the Backbone Institute. You're not a chiropractor.
3: <laughs> no, but you know what? I am a chiropractor
0: of character. Okay. So, so why, why did you choose that name, the Backbone Institute?
3: Because in 2000, uh, I had a book published called How to Grow a Backbone. 10 Strategies for Gaining Power and Influence at Work. And as I was writing that book, I'm an observer. I was saying that this morning. I've been watching people since I was a young child, fascinated by how some people are influential and other people are not only not influential, but they're not really even very good at following. So I was trying to tease out what that was about. And when people wanted to have influence, but couldn't for whatever reason, what's that about? So I thought about it a lot, I wrote about it a lot, and and teased out the three elements of backbone are competence, confidence, and risk taking. Hmm. And as I began to think more about that, I thought, you know what, that's a learning system. So if I can identify a risk I would like to take, some people are really uncomfortable with that word risk. Fine, call it a goal. Especially right?
0: after COVID, we're very risk-averse.
3: Oh, I know. Well, 21 years ago, I was speaking to a tech conference and, and was talking about competence, competence, risk-taking. And a techie runs up to me at a break and he goes, you can't say that word. I'm like, whoa, what <laughs> word? And he goes, risk. I said, why not? He said, because people get freaked out. Yes. Like, that's kind of the whole point of competence, <laughs> right. confidence, and risk-taking, Well, right? we used
0: to say, you know, risk isn't something to be completely avoided and eliminated. It's something to be managed. Because we talk about risk management and we, we would say- if you wanted to eliminate risk, you wouldn't be able to leave the house. Exactly. And now after COVID, we got people who literally haven't
3: left the house for and, over a year. And don't want to anymore. Oh, that's so, what I'm worried about. And that's a whole, I mean, we could go down the COVID path, which <laughs> we'd probably <laughs> rather not this morning. But, <laughs> but the whole risk notion became a starting point. So if that's the thing that I'm scared about, but I'm really kind of intrigued by and I'd like to go do, how then, what do I need to back up and learn how to do the competence fee? Piece in learning how to do things, my confidence grows. Mm. It's an iterative process, it's not a one and done thing. But if I can begin doing that on a small basis and take these little risks, maybe I can approach medium risk and then maybe I can really swing for the fence.
0: But these days in society today, we have more opportunities to learn and grow our skills at our fingertips for free than I think any time in the history of civilization. Yes. And yet there's not that curiosity. You talked about curiosity. Just, I wonder how that works. I wonder how I, and we, sometimes we, we see ourselves as, well, I I don't know how to do that. And in some, instead
3: of learning, we just let that ignorance define us. Right. I think that's true. And I think what part of the reason for that, I think, is we got distracted, Mm. right? There were so many things to be had. So many accolades to amass. Social media has been a driver of not only distraction, but in my judgment, and it's simply that, uh, an invitation to stay immature Mm. and to focus on things that are surface at the expense of really developing that curiosity, the character, the strength to confront life as it is not as somebody else paints it for us or as we wish it would be. That takes courage. And we don't tend to support courage these days. It's, it's that's really uncomfortable.
1: Mm. Yeah, it is uncomfortable. Speaking of uncomfortable things, sometimes people, they attack life without any kind of purpose. And that would make me super uncomfortable (laughs) because I don't like to do things without a plan. And sometimes we talk about life plans. Sometimes we talk about personal mission in life. Do you have a personal mission? Because obviously you've done some things with great intentionality. Yeah. Do you have a personal mission?
3: I have a personal mission in the sense that somewhere in my childhood, I recognized that what I'm really good at is encouraging people. Mm. I was a pseudo mom. I was the second of six. My mother was distracted with my siblings. And oh, by the way, she wanted to go back to school, which I thought highly, Against you're the mother here, right? So I had these big ideas. <laughs> you didn't get a vote in that no, decision. No, I didn't get a vote oh, in that. You imagine, bad. right? But <laughs> I was certainly opinionated about that. But I began again, observer of people. How do people? What things do people respond to? What makes people say, "I, I want more of that"? Hmm. And it's not stuff, right? I want to learn. I would hear things like, "Wow, I, that's a word I never heard before." Where do you want to go? The Smoan Islands, why? I I don't know why. I'm just curious about that. Mm. We're not all wired the same, and yet our society seems to be wanting conformity more than character, and conformity more than curiosity or contribution. It's like we've got the game plan. You fit in this, this space, and you just stay there and you do this thing, and everybody will be happy. You start asking questions that we're not prepared to answer, now your problem, mm. and and I, I understand all of that. And as I said this morning, we you know knowledge is power. Well, you know what? Sometimes power is power, and that's real and that's raw. And the people who work that way, we tend to judge out of i um, I'm going to be generous here, out of a, a condition of innocence, or ignorance. We just don't know, and we fear asking the wrong question at the wrong time. And getting somebody to come hard at us in opposition or heaven forbid, we embarrass ourselves. And that's one thing I have embarrassed myself so many times in so many places. Now it's just kind of, well, okay.
0: I read an entrepreneur said, you know, you only have to succeed once. You can fail as many times as you want, but you just have to get it right once. And that can make your career. It can make your, I mean, think about Mark Cuban, think about even Abraham Lincoln, right? Mm -hmm. Fail, fail, fail. His entire life, it was pretty much a failure until he gets elected president. And then we look at him and say, this was the greatest president we ever had. And, uh, you know, he would say, well, I just didn't have the right job, you know. And
3: (laughs) (laughs) Well, and it's to the purpose question, too, and and having a plan, Jonathan, I've never had a plan. What I learned early on is when I create a plan and I ask for help, I want to be an attorney, right? that doesn't necessarily guarantee that the people who are around you who have the resources to help or not are on board with the plan. Mm. So people have asked me many times over the years, how did you get to Brunei? How did you get to here? And I, my answer has simply been stumble forward.
1: Mm. Mm. The
3: answer to how is yes, you are going to fall down. If you stay down, game over. Now, if you need to stay down and rest for a little bit, cool. Absolutely. But then get up and go again. I don't know where I'm going. Find somebody interesting to talk to. Find something interesting to learn. Whatever that is, stumble forward.
1: Could you say maybe that the plan is to just keep moving? Could be, sure. Because I think sometimes we we have to make a specific plan. And, and certainly, especially for young people, I must still call myself young. Um, for young <laughs> people, it's like, man, if I make a plan, then I have to stick with it for 50 years. Well, no. You make a plan and you iterate on the plan. And I, I like know. what you said a second ago. You, you make a plan, you choose a direction. And if that direction doesn't work out, find another direction. Right. Just keep moving.
3: Keep moving. And, and, I, and we know this physically, right? If we don't move our muscles atrophy. Same thing intellectually. If we don't keep exploring, we cretinize our cranium. All right. All oh, right. Well, let, me,
0: let me be the crusty administ- administrator in the room and play devil's advocate. It's all good to stumble forward and basically fumble through life with no no particular direction. But what about the role of commitment to something? And what about the fact that, you know, I, I mean, there's a, there's a generation now that wants to just aimlessly wander through life. So this message could, could be very attractive to them. Oh, good. I don't have to have a real drive. I don't need a direction. I don't think that's what you're saying. Not at all. So how would you differentiate between somebody who sort of lacks motivation or direction in life versus somebody who is that risk taker, but that maybe is brave enough to change direction as the circumstances or the prompting or open doors or those kinds of things. Yeah, in my life.
3: brain's going in like 16 yeah, different directions right life. now. <laughs> but I think the, the commitment part is essential to any forward motion and to any success in life. If you try something and you get bored, it's like, ah, I'm going to go do something else. There's got to be some sense of direction, right? And it goes to the legacy question, Jonathan. We talked about a little bit a while ago before we started this podcast. How do you want to be remembered on this planet? What, What did you touch? What did you teach? Who did you influence? How did you use the resources that were available to you? What are you all about And I don't think, and I'm not in the academic environment a whole lot, but I I sometimes worry that our educators are missing that particular question because that really challenges human beings to investigate a plan. Is this truly what I want to be committing, commitment, my intellectual energy, my resources, my time on this planet? Mm -hmm. I don't know. And when we're young and we're trying to figure out, we don't know. But we need to have these conversations with people who can challenge our thinking and who can say, well, have you considered this? No, I never even thought about that. What I see in you, so leaders, anybody shaping people, I see something in you. Let me describe what I see. You then as an individual can say, wow, that's cool. I never even knew I had that. Or what? No, that's not me. Isn't it
0: incredibly powerful, the statement of a mentor? about your potential. I can remember specific people in law school, in college, in high school that said, I could see you doing this. Mm -hmm. And then later as a professor, I'll make a comment to a student saying, usually in every class that I teach business law and over the years, I'll call somebody up after class and say, that was a really insightful point you made today. Have you ever considered law school? And then I've had people come back six, seven years later and say, "You know, I, it, I never even thought about that profession or that career until you made that comment to me." And then I think, "Ooh, I hope it was the right thing." You know, I have a lot of responsibility to chart someone's path in life, but. God will use that comment or that that little nudge by a mentor to just kind of open someone's eyes to a whole new world of possibility. It's incredible. It
3: truly is amazing. And I think one of the most remarkable gifts we can give one another as human beings is literally noticing each noticing. other. Noticing, yeah. Wow. I see this. I noticed that.
0: Hmm. I was reading an article that you wrote back in 2019. So pre-COVID, pre-the world changed, this and that and you were writing about change and i don't know if you remember this or not but you you talked about this leadership secret change without changing and you you began your article and i thought this is exactly what i run into as the chief executive sometimes we have an idea and we say listen this would be so much better if we could if we could expand in this area if we could adjust in this and everybody says yeah As long as I can do that without actually changing a single thing that I do. (laughs) (laughs) And so we want the result, but we don't want the change. And you said it this way. I want it to be better, but I don't want to change anything that makes me comfortable. I'm all for change. Just don't make me alter my routines. And if we're anything in life, it's we're all about preserving the status quo, right? And yet you cannot grow as an organization or an individual without change, but it's that thing we're so afraid of.
3: You know what? I just hate this. (laughs) I don't want to do this. Yeah. You don't want to do this. No, but this is why, again, to your point, we need community. We need people around us who will notice us, who will see something that's worth developing and who will then encourage us to, to step out of the comfort zone. I teach a lot about Comfort zone, learning zone, panic zone, right? So the the center circle of those three concentric ones is comfort zone. It's where we love. It's where we're most confident. You know, we're happy, happy clams. Uh, just outside the comfort zone is the learning zone. By definition, uncomfortable. Mm. I don't want to. I hate school. I don't want, you know. And then just outside the, the learning zone is the panic zone. I don't know how quick a trip it is from my comfort zone that's going to land me in that panic zone. So, man, I'm going to be really, really careful. And if I go out in that panic zone, if I get out there. What's my first instinct? Get me back to the comfort zone and build walls. As we deal with other human beings who have that same comfort learning panic zone, I can say to myself on a given day, okay, I'm going to go ask a question that I'm uncomfortable about, but I'm I'm intending to grow. So I ask you a question and, and it strikes you right in the heart of your panic zone. We have an explosion I feel terrible. I don't know what to do. I run back to my comfort zone. I build a wall and I go, I'm glad I'm never talking. I'm never asking that question again. This is how we're trained.
0: Or or a a question is almost misperceived as a challenge. Yes. And then there's an emotional response of defensiveness. And, and, you know, defensiveness is just us trying to reassure ourselves that I'm okay. Mm -hmm. I'm not the monster that this person evidently thinks that I am. This happened to me yesterday. And I think sometimes we get emotional, whether it's at work or in life, because we are just totally misinterpreting maybe what really is a question. And this happens in in child rearing as well. You said you have a daughter and I'm sure this never happened to you, but every once in a while, my kids will push back on a rule or something that we have thrown out and said, this is what we do in our family. And they said, but dad, why can't we, you know, and they want to launch into comparison with the other kids. And so as a parent, you know, you want to get defensive of that and you feel like your kid is challenging. And I heard the analogy once and I think it's so good. It was so good for me. Sometimes your children are like when you get into the, the ride on the roller coaster and when they're, when they're challenging those restrictions or structures in their life, it's like when you pull up on the bar, you don't want the bar to give in. You want it to be strong and to push back and resist your force, right? You just are testing to make sure it's really solid and it's really meaningful and protective. And then- you're good with it. Maybe that's what they're doing, and it's not really meant to be. You know that all oh, they're evil
3: and they're terrible and they're going to turn out rotten and then make me look bad, which is probably well, the greatest
0: fear of every parent. I right? think
3: that's true, and it's funny you you tell that story. I have two daughters actually, and they're seven years apart, so okay. I had, went through the teenage stuff with both of them. Right, <laughs> and and uh, they were maybe twelve or thirteen, and I sat them both down and I said, look. We're coming on a number of years here now. You're not going to like me very much. I'm not going (laughs) to like you very much. And that's all normal. We'll get through it. So when when my youngest was, I think, a junior in high school, we're having this very heated debate and we're standing at the the counter in the kitchen. She slams her hand down on the counter and she's like, Mom, this is one of those times, isn't it? And I said, I believe so. (laughs) She went to her room. That was the end of it. But but to your point, we, we... I don't want to look bad. I don't want the community to say, oh my God, she's a terrible mother. My kids, but the right of separate, the right of passage, separating from our families, separate, it's a painful thing. Again, to notice each other, to support and encourage growth. Those are super easy words to say, and man, they're tough to do. Yeah, We all grow. We all learn. And probably grow
0: more from the times we do it wrong when we didn't get it right. But imagine the humility it takes for someone, especially in a leadership position, to admit, you know what? I got that wrong. I'm sorry. I'm sorry I did that to you or responded that way. And that's not me. That's not what I want to do. That wasn't right. Will you forgive me? And it takes a lot of strength to do that, a lot of humility, but there's power
3: in that, too. Incredible power, especially when you say what you need to say and let it be and allow that silence for people to really hear what you just said. Wow. That to me is a a huge platform for the building of respect Mm. for the, for the encouragement of curiosity and this exploration. I can, that bar right on the ride, I can trust this now so I can challenge in ways that I'm really, really interested in learning from you about as long as you allow me that challenge. Right. To say, I'm sorry, when you misunderstood or for any of us, powerful, powerful healing and building.
1: When we were in the, the leadership breakfast upstairs, you were talking um, in the summary, and I liked what you said. Leadership is a noble calling, but it's a lot of hard work. Can you explain what you meant by noble calling?
3: Um, it, it really kind of leverages what we're just talking about here. It takes a lot of humility. We are not encouraged to be humble. We're encouraged to go big, right? Go big or go home and make your, make your name known and all of these kinds of things. Um, humility comes from mistake making and true, genuine learning and remorse. That's kind of counterculture. And, and the whole notion of doing that hard work and stepping in front of a crowd sharing a decision you've made and committed to and standing firm in that. I truly believe is noble in the sense that it inspires other to others to understand what that looks like. Wow. You made a decision. I may disagree, but if I can understand how you got there, I can appreciate if I'm a grown up. <laughs> so that's a whole nother angle of this, right? We're not often grown ups. when we are, it's a pretty powerful thing, but I do believe we are, we are, desperately in need of leadership today in all walks of life, in mm. every avenue. It's hard to do that. It's hard to grow into that. It's hard to accept the responsibility of that. So for all of our leaders listening to this now, thank you. It is a noble calling and it is really tough
0: work. So your your topic this morning was about toxicity in the workplace. And it's really the The uh, antithesis of leadership is allowing or creating that toxic work uh, environment. And I was wondering if there was an example that you could think of when a person's toxic communication strategy or style can even undermine the effectiveness of what would otherwise be a pretty solid or favorable business or mission or political platform. No matter what it is, if you're toxic in the way you're communicating – It doesn't matter that you were right. And, you know, that, that's something I think all the time. And even in ministry that happens, we get dogmatic about having the right position on a thing, and then we're just ugly or toxic in the way that we communicate it. Then nobody cares that you were right. And it it actually isn't just unnecessary. Doesn't it kind of undermine the rightness of the cause at that
3: point? I agree with you. I think it undermines it terribly. It destroys credibility. It destroys amity, comedy Mm. between people. And when we begin to destroy relationships because we are dogmatic or self righteous, um, we've lost our ability to influence in ways that we all, most of us want to be influenced. We really do. We want leaders. We want to know the right way to go. We want, again, that encouragement, but man, oh, man, if I can agree intellectually, but you're just so a toxic human being. Uh, yeah, I oof, don't make it that hard for me, please. But
0: toxic, it seems to me, when I saw your list of toxic behaviors, it seemed to me that the, the unfortunate part is toxic comes natural. Mm. I mean, that's the sin nature, the flesh, right. whatever you want to call it spiritually. Uh, but, you know, you listed out ignorance, arrogance, bias, deceit, competition, and the willful rejection of the truth. And I'm like, man, does that not describe that's straight Bible? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, that yeah. is really good, but yet that's the natural response that we have either to our experiences or to the stimuli around us, or even to just opportunities that come along is that our, our human nature will most often have us using others instead of encouraging others, as you talked about you being your gift. And, and I think, Man, I, I, I want to always have an environment that is free of those toxins. A toxin is a poison. Yes. So I, I, is your point, listen, these things are killing you and, and your business. Get them out. I mean, there's a better way.
3: Yes. In addition to that, being clear-eyed and, and strong-minded enough to recognize toxicity is real. It exists everywhere. We are not, as hard as we work, as sincere as we may be, we're not going to be able to get rid of it. How do we break through it? Hmm. How do we acknowledge and move on, right? And and it has to start with each one of us. Am I being ignorant and arrogant and all those kinds of things? Well, if nobody's sharing that what I'm doing is toxic, how would I know? It comes naturally.
0: My old boss used to talk about, when we'd go on the road and do conventions and workshops for ministry leaders, we would talk about the work environment and he would, he would talk about someone who had a bad spirit, Mm -hmm. you know? And I think that this is another way to describe that a bad spirit. He said, look, you've got to deal with the bad spirit. If you don't, if you don't deal with the root instead of just the fruit, right. Then uh, it's just going to fester and get worse you say, well, but I can't deal with this because this person is so talented and we really need them. And he said, listen, if you don't deal with it, what you're going to have is a talented bad spirit and they're going to leave. And when they leave, if you let it go, they're going to take five or a dozen other people with them because toxicity is like contagious. And <laughs> one toxic response, it seems to stimulate another toxic response.
3: Bad behavior multiplies. It really does. And when you're you're the bad leader, the bad spirit, the more people you can get following you, the cooler that is, man. You Mm -hmm. know what? And that's where you get these arm wrestling power struggles within organizations. Well, you know Satan, right? The bad angel and the good angel. And uh, none of this is new. Right. As I said this morning, it feels like this world right now is so, so, so much more toxic because we're living it. You know, you read the stories in the Bible or you read the Gulag Archipelago. You you read about the darkness of humanity. It's scary and it's real.
0: And we have access to more bad news mm. than yeah. we're probably meant to have to absorb. <laughs> I mean, honestly, are we meant to know every bad thing happening on the planet right now?
3: To what end?
0: Yeah. And so, yeah, it's addictive. Yeah. And so we get addicted to it. It affects us psychologically, emotionally, spiritually, And ultimately, maybe even physically, as we let those things kind of fester. So it's better to deal with it. It's better to root it out. As we sit here on a college campus and you have all these bright young minds around you and it's inspiring and it's exciting and it's optimistic because education is very future oriented and we can change the world and all of those things. What's some top advice or tip that you would give to somebody who's a college student that wants to get out there, have a life that matters and make a difference?
3: I have two responses. The first one that came to mind as I listened to you kind of set this up is how can you help these college kids? How can we collectively help them? Mm -hmm. When you talk to them, look in their eyes, Mm. let them know you see them, Mm. listen to what they're saying, repeat some of that back to them. So they feel seen, they feel heard, they feel valued. Then we can talk about share, share your thinking with me. What are you thinking you'd like to do? Again, going back to the beginning of this conversation, here's what I've noticed about you, right? Um, Have you thought about, would you consider, it's like, wow, I'm a kid and I don't know, and I would never say that out loud because, of course, I got it all put together, right? But breaking it down to the simple human connection to begin, we're all smart people. We all have the capability, God bless us all, and thank you, Lord, for the intellectual capacity but if we don't feel valued by someone as a human being first, that intellectual capacity may be destructive, may be depressing. Because we, we have, first of all, yes, too much negative input. Um, we're barraged with it daily. But so what? What do you see in me? What will you help me do if I trust you I will tell you what I'm thinking about, hmm. but if you're going to talk to me and look over my shoulder and look at the next kid walking down the hall, I, I got nothing.
0: So much of what's most valuable and most meaningful about education doesn't happen in the formal academic classroom. And, you know, more is caught than taught or that sort of thing. And so, you know, at Maranatha, we try to invest in the students' lives inside and outside the classroom for that very reason, because that's, what's going to be most effective Really, in building and generating the leaders that we're trying to develop.
1: The summary that you said upstairs in the leadership breakfast this morning was these things I wrote down, and I really appreciated them. and And if it's a student listening, these are excellent points. Just jot down and uh, incorporate them into your schedule whenever you can. Read broadly, listen intentionally, observe everything, journal about those observations record what is going on in your life, evaluate what's going on, and then decide what to do with it. Those were great summations of breaking through that toxicity that we talked about this morning. I think it's a great um, summary of what we've even talked about today at any point in our lives as leaders, as people who are middle managers, maybe you're following. These are good things to remember each day. Susan, thank you so much for your time and your commitment to making a difference, making relationships and making them work, and even digging into those hard conversations.
3: Thank you so much for having me here this morning. It's been a true privilege and an honor.
1: It's been our pleasure. Our next interview is with Mr. Mark Herbster, Dean of the College of Bible and Church Ministries at Maranatha Baptist Seminary and the Director of Student Discipleship. Mark and his wife Amy reside in Watertown with their four daughters, two of which attend MBU. Mark began his tenure at MBU in 2018 after 17 years of evangelistic ministry. His favorite meal is steak, and he's a Kansas City native. He and Amy regularly host students in their home and root for the Chiefs, Royals, and
2: Jayhawks. Mark, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be with you guys today. So who's better looking, you or Mike? Well, I guess it depends on which Amy you are talking to, since both of our wives are (laughs) named Amy. You guys didn't make it easy on anybody, did you?
0: I'm sure that's never led to any confusion. (laughs) You traveled with your brother in evangelism, and I'm sure there was probably no greater thrill than to see your families, uh, your kids born, your families right. work and minister together and, and yeah, travel it was, together.
2: It was really a dream come true. It was, um, I knew the Lord had called me to be an evangelist early on in my life, but I didn't know that Mike was going to be joining me, but I was always hopeful and to be twins and to be married to girls that had the same name, that was kind of unique. <laughs> and then go figure, we named all of our kids starting with the letter M. Yeah, and You probably know well, that, obviously. and so that really confused people, but uh, yeah, we had we had a great time traveling together as uh, family members, for sure.
0: All right, so I have a few questions for you, just to start <laughs> okay. things off and get to know you a little bit, and Jonathan mentioned that you are a big Kansas City Chiefs fan, is that right? Oh yeah, what, definitely. W- w- why? I mean, what, is, what, is, <laughs> so, what, what, what are we rooting well, for here? Yeah,
2: we're rooting for, well, first of all, of course, I grew up in Kansas City and yeah. um, moved there when I was in fourth grade. And for a long, long time, we really struggled as a team. We did have Joe Montana one time at one point. <laughs> Montana and Mahomes—they both start with M too. By yeah, the way, figure yeah. that one. Well, good luck. Uh, yeah. So <laughs> we really we never went to the Super Bowl for all those years, and then finally, you know, we do have Patrick Mahomes who took us to the Super Bowl twice in a row, and you know, probably will have a few more Super Bowls, but. I'm not a fair weather fan, which is why I'm a Royals fan. <laughs> right? Okay. Yeah, I'm and, a Cubs uh, fan.
0: I understand yeah, yeah, that completely. Know, yeah. Me,
2: the Cubs fan. Yeah. For, so it's I cheer for all the team. Kansas city teams and interesting that Kansas city is in Missouri. The Kansas city I'm from is in Missouri. And uh, yeah. yet I never cheered for the Mizzou tigers. I always cheered for the Rock Kansas Hawks, Jayhawks and in, in college basketball. So that's interesting, but they're much better than the Mizzou tigers. All right. So, you have, I assume, traveled to all fifty states in evangelism. The only state I've not, I personally have not been to, is is Alaska. Okay, That's the only one. Is and there? going to do that someday soon.
0: Is there a foreign country on your list that, if you had the chance to go, and you haven't been there yet, but if you had the chance to go, you, you'd really want to visit?
2: Yes, I, I I've been so many different places, but one place I'd love to go is Dubai. And why partially just because i've seen the kind of uh just the exquisite nature of the yeah i wouldn't be really going to dubai for probably the same reason i'm going to cameroon okay or to uganda I, I think it just looks like a very interesting place to survey what, what in the world is happening there that, you know, cause they're building the world's tallest buildings. They have this massive business culture there. Right. I've been to places like Dubai, like Hong Kong. We had and a layover Singapore. in Dubai. Oh really? The
0: airport is unbelievable. It's like made out of glass and everything is just modern and incredible and smooth and rich and glitzy. And you can see Dubai. Dubai is the city, right? I think it's UAE yeah. is the country. Yeah, that's so right. That's right. D- d- you can see the downtown and the buildings. They're they're not just tall. They're interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah it's just the architecture it's of like it they all. It's like want
2: to so, do everything like better than everyone else. In- but when we got off the plane
0: and we walked into the terminal, it was our first... Stop outside the United States on our way to India with the soccer team a few years ago. And when we, when we stepped off the plane, it was in the middle of a call to prayer Mm. and I'd never heard that. Wow. And we all said, what is that over the loudspeaker? That's, we, we we didn't know if it was music or what, and we just stopped and listened and we realized this is the, the call to prayer. And, and. Yeah, you was everybody realized, bowing in in, in the Nobody's airport like did towards anything. Mecca or whatever. <laughs> no, I, no, we didn't see anything like that. But you, it was the first uh, eye-opening, like, oh, we're not in the United States anymore. This yeah. is uh, very foreign. So.
2: One other country I've always wanted to go to um, that I haven't been to is Russia, and just had an interest in you know doing some ministry there someday as well. Oh, okay, the
1: real reason we want to go to Dubai
0: is night golf.
2: Oh. They have indoor night golf at some of these places. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And you can go skiing, snow skiing indoors. Yeah. They've got it all. When you when money is no object, (laughs) you come up with night (laughs) golf. Exactly. (laughs) The the podcast is is dedicated to talking to folks that have accomplished something in life and that that are about something, people who are on mission. And so, I wonder as you think about your own life and your diverse ministry opportunities, because you've been in evangelism and you've served in camp ministry probably every every summer.
2: Yeah, pretty much including every during summer during college.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you you're now been at Maranatha now since 2018. And so, as you think about all those ways that God has used you, how do you define your mission in life? What what really are you all about?
2: yeah it's interesting it's a really great question that people really need to ponder and we need to ponder and and I can say probably over my life uh the mission has stayed very focused in some ways and in other ways it has had, it has deepened and probably grown um towards something that I would have never maybe expected hmm. um as i've i've as I've searched the scriptures and I've seen you know that really it's not just saying my, my mission is ministry. What is ministry and how do we function in ministry? I, I do think, though, that early on in my life, I decided that my life was going to be about ministering to other people for the glory of God. And so I know that we sometimes say that glibly, it, that what is your mission? Well, bring glory to God. When you say early in life,
0: are you talking high school or even before yeah, that?
2: Yeah, I, I would say uh, by the time I was 13 years of age, I already had felt a strong burden to be involved in preaching ministry. Started preaching when I was thirteen, and and really, I I do believe at that point set myself on this pathway to do even the things that I'm doing today. Could have I'm sure never your envisioned dad a big influence in yes, so that. Yeah, my mom and dad. Of course, dad was a pastor for almost thirty years in Kansas City, and uh, growing up in a pastor's home, um, seeing the joy of like investing in people like like he was. And of course, he wasn't showing us all of the struggles. Mm-mm. He was very wise in helping to, helping us see uh, the passion and the joy and the benefits of ministry. And we saw glimpses of some of the the, the trials, but you there and I was are a lot both, more than we knew.
0: You and I are both PKs. And yeah. I hear other pastor's kids describe that experience in a really negative way. And it's something I don't relate to very well because yeah, for me—, neither. me it wasn't a negative thing at all. Uh, I knew that there were ups and downs in ministry, but my dad didn't bring that stuff home. And when he did, it was always in a positive way that the Lord was working. And
2: exactly, there was yeah. God's and grace I think the, and the combination of the the incredible uh, giftedness that my parents had in ministry with the consistency of life at home, as well that combination of seeing the success in ministry, but then the sincerity of their lives. Um, really impacted. I mean, there's, it's not one of the obvious reasons why all three of us are in the ministry. My brother, Matt in Hong Kong, Mike at Southland Christian Ministries, and then me serving here at Maranatha is because our parents lived that consistency. And they were on that mission, the Mm -hmm. mission to show us that no matter what you do in life is, is all about the heavenly kingdom. It's the citizenship in heaven that matters, not the citizenship on the earth that matters. And I think the older I've, I've gotten and the more I've experienced ministry, I think that the Lord has opened my eyes to really what is actually going on when we minister to people. And it's way bigger than we can ever imagine. So what does that word
0: mean to you, ministry? Because it's used to describe organizations and programs, but it, that doesn't seem to be the way you're using it because you're talking about an impact on people.
2: Yes, I I believe that a servant or a minister is someone who does whatever is necessary to make someone else successful. That's a definition I believe I probably learned at camp at the Wilds Christian Camp. I I don't know if it's verbatim, but so when I you know when I think of ministry, it really is all about what do you how are you making others successful? I think of Philippians 2 that we are to esteem others better than ourselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. And and then as you start to do that, then God blesses and exalts you to a place where more people can be influenced, more people can be um, impacted by your life and ministry.
0: That verse is fascinating. The word esteem there mm-hmm. is is literally to account. Just just reckon it to be true. Yeah. And it doesn't mean that you go through life thinking you're the worst person in the world. It means that you place a higher value on others intentionally. And it, it's, it's something we have to do because our yeah, flesh is right. always trying to elevate ourselves. And yet there's a humility in ministry that says, no, I'm here to serve others. And yeah. that's a different kind of life.
2: I, I totally agree. And I think that that is cultivated in, I, I'm seeking to cultivate this, I should say, in my own life by recognizing the greatness of God first, because think that w- when pride is exhibiting itself in our lives, it's when, it's when we are, when we think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think it's because we don't have a proper view of God. And the deeper I go in the, the word with God and his, and his attributes, the more I realize life isn't at all about me. It's about what, what is God doing in the lives of others? Wow. So what
0: is ministry like in evangelism? What is that? What is it like? I mean, we, we see evangelists come in, they are, they're with us for a week or three days and it's incredible. And there's great preachers and, and, uh, they have awesome stories, you know, evangelists always (laughs) have the best stories and, you know, we, we are encouraged and we grow spiritually and then they're gone. Right. And it's like, where did they go? (laughs) Is it, is it, repetitive and monotonous to be an evangelist? So <laughs> what, what is that, life of an evangelist yeah, actually definitely. like?
2: <laughs> I think there's definitely a side of it that is a very repeatable uh, ministry. I mean, we, were, we would be singing a lot of the same songs and ministering in the same ways almost every week. But it kind of goes back to what I was saying about how we're investing in people. What would, what would make it alive for us every week is that it was fresh because it was new people.
0: But I have noticed that you are particularly good at Christian confrontation. Mm. You're one of the most friendly people I've ever met and outgoing, but you also, I mean, it's a little ironic to have yeah, those two abilities. So can you speak to that? I mean, where does that come from? Because most people don't have the guts to confront somebody, even a even a close friend, right. about something that they're grieved about or concerned about. And they, if they do, they probably don't do it in the most gracious way. So there's an art form almost to Christian yeah, confrontation.
2: I, I don't, I don't know where it all has come from. I do know that my dad was a great example to me in that I heard over and over verses uh, like um, speaking the truth in love, right. you know, you got to have truth and love. You have to have conviction and compassion together because compromise is always wrong but contention is wrong too. Mm. And uh you know you bring this up because just just uh was it to, today or yesterday I I just uh had to do a gracious confrontation of a student and uh, it was just a really simple conversation and I feel like if you can if the if the people that you're confronting know that you love them and that you've attempted to build that relationship with them, which I, I strive to do, you can't always do that. Okay. But strive to do that. Then the, they already know that it's coming from a spirit of love. And yeah, I, I agree with you. It is a little bit of an ironic thing because I'm a very driven person. I'm a very opinionated person. I'm a, I'm a preacher. <laughs> so, so, you know, every, most preachers do know what they do and why they do it. and And they're not afraid to tell you why. But at the same time, I I do feel like the Lord has developed this. I don't know. It wasn't natural because I'm naturally just really go after it and just confront like, you know, harshly. But um, con- has really developed more of a, a friendliness and a smile. And even when sometimes when I'm saying something that's pretty tough to somebody, I right. can truly do it with a sense of of, you know, it's okay.
0: There's more, always more than one way to fail in anything, but this particularly, you can be too strong or you can be too yes. a, too much of an avoidance. Um, on the too strong side of things, I would always tell my kids, listen, or even myself sometimes I have to say, you can be right or you can be effective, right? W- which yeah. one do you want to be? That's good. <laughs> and and it, a lot of times it's much easier to see someone's faults from the outside looking in, a lot, a lot harder to see your own. Yes. And it's even harder still to accept- uh, a correction. Mm-hmm. I used to bristle so bad when my wife would kick me under the table. If we were at a, <laughs> a social gathering and I was getting a little carried away or whatever, I know that's a shock to think yeah. that might <laughs> well, ever happen, ha- but no, that happens. in the old days that happens to me too. And I, I'd, I'd, I just would be like, Hey, I know what I'm doing. And she was anytime somebody who loves you gives you that heads up they're mm-hmm. doing so for your best interest. right? And yet we tend to lash out and we tend to, it makes us angry and we, we don't like that, but we need to accept that kind of admonition. It's a warning, right? Yes. Hey, we're getting yes. a little close to the line here. And, uh, and that's a great asset. If you have somebody that cares enough about you to tell right. you the truth, right? Mm-hmm. That's incredible. And What would you say, though, to somebody on the other side of it who says, oh, I'm just not good at that, and that's not my problem, that's not my gift, I'm just, I don't do that.
2: I think it goes back to what I was saying is the ultimate mission, and that, that is to make others successful. And sometimes we think that making others successful is only those really encouraging, joyful, helpful times. Right. But yet Galatians 6 reminds us that uh, you which are spiritual restore such a one. And sometimes the greatest servant deed, the greatest ministry deed I can do is confront somebody lovingly. And I I would just challenge somebody that's saying, oh, well, that's not my business or that's not for me to handle is is really to ask yourself the question, are you truly a servant to that person? Because a servant would, would make that opportunity uh, would take that opportunity to help that person be better for the glory of God by confronting them. It's so, never fun to do though. No. So the question is, why did you stop doing that? So you, yeah, you've you done so yeah. much of the
1: work on it. We, we we've covered really well. And, and I think we're all on the same page with evangelism is such a crucial ministry. Yes. And the camp ministry just fits really well with even Maranatha culture of uh, being intentional about decision-making and, and consecrating your life to Christ. So why did you stop and why did you come off
0: the road? I'm not sure he stopped.
2: Yeah,
1: <laughs> right? I know I'm
2: still doing, I'm still doing a lot of traveling, but not the same sort of evangelistic style of uh week long meetings and things like that. And, and, you know, I did that for 17 years, lived in an RV and, and so the question is a very valid one. And I think, you know, the Lord started to work in my heart in my, in, and in my family, my wife and I especially, uh, we were feeling a little unsettled about what we were seeing in uh, many of the local church ministries we were involved with. We were noticing a lack of, uh, a lack of energy, a lack of um, uh, a multi-generational churches. A lot of them, a lot lot of the churches we were being involved with were mostly older folks and they, we were hearing stories about people sending their kids away and then they come back and they're in the community, but they're never returning to the church, those kinds of things. And we were starting to just feel very unsettled about, is this something we'll be doing this type of ministry for another 20 years? And we didn't know what the Lord was gonna open for us. We didn't really have any vision of that or or goal for a, a particular ministry. But my wife would say to me regularly, she would say things like, you know, I really think that maybe, maybe you'd be good in a college setting someday. She would say that through the years. And I always was like, mm, I'm not really an academic guy. I'm not, you know, I'm not I don't view myself as a scholar. I'm definitely not a scholar, especially being around guys here at Maranatha that are. I noticed that <laughs> Uh, but I I knew that I would I would enjoy the connection with the next generation, but my heart became very burdened about specifically conservative Christian ministry in passing that on to the next generation. And so when we showed up here to Maranatha and um, Dr. Marriott said, "Hey, you know, we really like the way you're connecting with everybody here." We appreciate your preaching. It's very strong. It's very expositional. He was, you know, complimenting me, and he was like, "We think maybe, maybe you should consider working here." I don't remember exactly how he said it, but something like that. I was like, immediately in my heart, I was like, "This might be it." I mean, it was almost immediate, hmm. um, because we were fully engaged in the in the role of evangelism. We had meetings scheduled for the next two or three years but i was energized and more excited about what i was seeing in the lives of the of the college students and thinking that maybe we should be able to take what we believe in ministry and philosophy and life and family and articulate it to the next generation at the college at the college age in a way that is receivable and praise god that's you know so that that was the burden that kind of moved me away from the the methodology I was using, I do kind of agree with Doctor Davis, though that I'm still an evangelist and I'm still doing a lot of what I what I love to do. You're
0: you're never going to not identify yourself as an evangelist right. because it's who you are. It's it comes out, but God designed you that way. Yeah, you have a pretty broad portfolio of responsibilities at Maranatha. I'm sure it keeps you busy. Uh, you oversee sure. all of the ministerial training programs at both the undergraduate and the seminary level. Those were big shoes to fill from Dr. Oates as yes. he transitioned Definitely. more 100% into the classroom and that. Um, but you're also the director of student discipleship. Right. Can you describe some of the mechanisms that yeah. exist where where real authentic st- – discipleship is taking place?
2: So I really am so thankful for that, that privilege, because that was a part of my title that probably did um, really draw me into Maranatha is that, that discipleship model, you know, that, that part of my job description. We're working very closely with the athletes. Um, I think that it, that was um, something that was brought to my attention when I got here. That was a needed uh, area of expressly getting um, some growth in spiritual development in those areas. So I work closely with uh, the coaches, making sure that they have a plan, making sure that they're moving forward with their plan, and even even particularly with the basketball team doing even some, some one-on-one with them and help with them particularly. I'm so thankful for how the Lord has put a great team together that I, I stay connected with with our Office of Student Activities and with our Dean of Students specifically. Stay connected with them in many, many cases with discipleship, knowing uh, what is going on with the student body and the student leadership, as well as what is going on in the dormitories. And thankfully, we're, we're a strong team of, of guys that are very concerned about that spiritual development in regards to that. I do, of course, a lot of one-on-ones in, on my own, but I can't do all the discipling. We have four, 450 some students, uh, you know, and so on campus, if I could, I would, you, you guys know how I operate I would do that <laughs> if I could, but I do want to have an open door policy. I'm thankful for how, you know, we we've, we've created a, a schedule like with chapel now that I think is just outstanding, and that of course has been a team team decision on all that, but what we have going with like the small groups and with the student life workshops and then of course chapels and societies in and, and that time period every day, which is so focused. And and just a quick story on that. I have a, a guy in my small group who came to me about a month ago and said, I've got I've got a full ride to leave here and and to be at this he he named a particular school. And he said, I can go there and it's a f- fairly solid school. Everything's going to be covered for me. My mom and dad kind of really want me to go. And he said, I d- I, I'm just not sure that I should leave Maranatha. And I said, well, keep praying about it. I'm here for you and whatever we need to do, we'll we'll talk through this. Well, I just talked to him yesterday and here's exactly what he said to me. He said, I have never in my life been in a place where I had so much spiritual influence. And so I said, so what did you decide to do? And I I pretty much knew what he had decided based upon what he said. He said, I've decided, I know my parents want me to go there and it's all covered and paid for, but I need to be at Maranatha. He said, I'm staying here because this is the place, the spiritual influence that I'm getting here in all, all places on this campus is something I've never seen in my life. And so that, that's just like a thrill to me because that's exactly the environment we are attempting to create here. And of course, everyone's involved in it.
0: A couple of years ago, something kind of occurred to me as I was thinking about the student experience in relation to the rest of your entire life. And especially at a place like Maranatha, which is such an affirming and supportive campus environment for not only academics, although that's certainly a big part of the thrust, this is a college, but for the spiritual aspect as well, and for developing the right kinds of decisions and standards about what kind of life you're right. going to live. And and that realization was that every single person that serves the Lord here at Maranatha is 100% dedicated to every student's success. Right. That's That's our life mission. That's why we're here. And – After I thought about that, I thought, wow, incredible to be in a place where every single person that you pass on the sidewalk wants you to succeed. Right. Imagine that. I think the students
2: feel that too.
0: Yeah. And and then I realized, and this is the last time that that's going Mm. to be true Mm -hmm. in your life. Because when you graduate, no matter where you go, no matter where you end up, whether it's ministry or business or healthcare or education or whatever it is, its people are going to kind of be out to get you a little bit. It's not there to help as much as it is competition right. and you know just downright evil in the world today. Well, I,
2: I mean, I think what we're trying to do is exemplify what we hope they will be. And that is discipleship. That's the first step is really being the proper example. Follow me as I follow Christ. And one of the things that's really strongly emphasized here is servant leadership. And so we as leaders exhibiting what christ did is he he served in order to be in in order to be a leader he became a servant he is by nature a servant and so when we demonstrate that here on this campus and and then we hope that they leave and and they experience that for the rest of their life there's a there there's a couple things i say regularly and i i know i'm a a creature of habit because i'm an evangelist so i just keep (laughs) repeating things right but uh, i say one one of the things that i I love to say is this is a short-term experience but that we hope will generate a lifetime of commitment because four years goes by very fast. I know cause I was in college. You guys were as well. And you look back with fond memories mostly. Okay. But, but what we're hoping is that these four years will be an, a short term experience that, that launches them into a, a lifetime of commitment. They don't realize how they're going to feel when they look back like we do now, uh, how, how awesome it was to be in this environment okay but they'll they will they will someday the other thing i say regularly just quickly say this is that uh is that every occupation is an opportunity of ministry and i think that's really important especially coming from me as the dean of the college of bible and church ministries because it's not just pastoral vocation that i'm interested in i want our business guys and our uh med- those being trained in medicine nurses and educators, all of them to recognize we're all in the ministry and there's no second-class citizen.
0: So as you look at that whole portfolio of ministry and all that you've poured yourself into a thousand percent, is it worthwhile and what makes it worthwhile?
2: (laughs) Yeah. Well, the, the answer is absolutely worthwhile. Um, when you think about, and, and I live with this, I'm, I'm sure you guys do as well as here at, here at campus, when you think about and you start to perceive in your mind, where will these students be five years from now, 10 years from now, and you think about the amazing impact that they're going to have on people. I, I literally think this often. I'll be able to say, I talked to them. I, they were in my office. I will get a lot of joy for many, many years watching how the Lord develops them and uses them. And of course, we get to see this with even recent graduates that are serving the Lord and people that are in ministry all around the world that came out of Maranatha. And ultimately, of course, theologically, we know that even a cup of cold water in his name does not go unnoticed. So we know know it's worth it because We're servants of the Lord and whatever we do in the name of the Lord for the sake of his name is going to be honored and uh, we're laying up treasures in heaven for sure.
1: So it's been a joy to talk with you today. Everyone knows on campus how excited you are to be here. I think we enjoy you being around and your whole family too, not just you. Thank you for your life of service before you even got here. And thank you for not just talking about how things are supposed to be done, but showing Mm -hmm how things are supposed to be done. By God's grace.
2: Thanks for being with us today. Thanks for the opportunity.
1: Thank you for joining us today. On Mission is a production of Maranatha Baptist University. To connect with Susan Marshall, go to BackboneInstitute.com. To learn more from Maranatha Seminary or College of Bible and Church Ministries, join the next online session or enroll on campus at mbu.edu slash apply. Subscribe to On Mission on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Don't forget to leave a review as this will help other growing leaders find these conversations. For more information about our guests, previous episodes, and general information about On Mission or MBU, go to mbu.edu podcast. Join us again next week as we examine what keeps leaders
0: on mission.